0: is it, and this is the show. Hey, everybody. I start the show now. Jake Flores is gone, lost at sea, <laughs> somewhere over the Pacific. Where is he? Who knows? Uh, I'm Alex Patak. I'm here hosting the podcast today with the one and only world-famous Andrews Lee. Andrews Lee here. That's right. Folks, we're back, and we're doing climate change episode number... Forty-seven on the Poddam America podcast. Everyone's favorite topic: the world in flames.
1: Twelve away from solving it.
0: <laughs> we get closer every time. It's it's Six, unrealistic, 60. but yeah, sixty yeah. is going to do it. Yeah. As a as a materialist, you need to make uh, conservative estimates that if you want them to come to life, and I think sixty is a reasonable <laughs> number. For society to change around our podcast, um, we have a very special guest today joining the show. I didn't ask for your credits in advance. What, what's your like? What's your fanciest title? Uh, professor. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, you can do better than that. You're not a doctor.
2: <laughs> I am a doctor. I, oh, okay. As we a have friend a doctor of mine
0: said,
2: <laughs> I'm not the kind of doctor that helps people or gets paid a lot of money, but I am a doctor. <laughs> The most noble kind. Today, we
0: have Dr. Professor Matt Huber is joining the show to talk about his new book, Climate Change as Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I just want to say great title for the book. Great title, and I will say also a great cover.
1: I know authors are generally not involved in cover decisions, but what really struck me about this Book about climate change, no green. On the <laughs> it's seriously, it's it. It feels like the maybe that was a bit intentional, uh, in terms of trying to get a little more serious and uh, not get distracted by the the fluffy, fluffy good stuff. Um, do you do you have any insight into why red and black were the chosen uh,
2: color scheme? Uh, I don't. Um, <clears throat> it's actually, if you look, it's it's actually basically. I don't want to get Verso in trouble here, but it's it's kind of a stolen uh, <laughs> model of, a, I believe it's a German publisher in the 70s. I think they're, I, I, I'm going to butcher this, but they're called like Sacrump or something like that. And they had this, this, this same style, like oh. big, stark black covers with font that's starkly red or other, like they did other color combos. But it looks very, it's like basically a shout out to that. 1970s maybe early 80s style cool
0: you have the same font as the godfather is that intentional <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes yes we're trying to really do some meta stuff here um i do like that your point though i never thought that there's no green and one of the things maybe i'm kind of uh reacting to is for basically in academia and activists spaces, like for the last 40 years, there's been this idea that we're going to create what's called like a red green alliance, Mm -hmm. right? Bring the green stuff and bring the red stuff. And we're all going to sing Kumbaya and come together and solve these issues. And, and that hasn't really worked. Right. And so one of the, one of the more strident parts of the book is just basically trying to get us back to the, maybe back to the red basics Uh (laughs) which is back to the socialist basics about thinking about class struggle and and class power as being the the key issues and and building a working class movement to to solve these types of things so
0: yeah you've avoided the tropes there's no green and then the other thing that you get sometimes is like a sad lost penguin alone (laughs) on a big white field
2: yeah we had a polar bear on a on a you know the um the glacier the that's flow. yeah, yeah, the, the ice that's melted and that's off to sea. That was the alternative cover, and I i nixed that in favor of the the stark red and black. So it
0: does break my heart every time seeing the little polar bear try to swim. That is really hard to watch, it's
2: brutal. It's brutal. That image the be, world uh... just
0: keeps showing me since I was <laughs> around 15 years old <laughs> it has not gotten any easier to look at.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, the alternative is like the polar bear with a hard hat, you know, the polar bear working on some. Some green, we're gonna play the polar bears,
0: yeah. Here, punching in at the Coca Cola factory. <laughs> There's no time, <laughs> it's a big episode, everybody. Um, Matt, one thing I loved about your book is that you, uh, the first thing you do, and this is right in the introduction, is you confront the framing of the climate movement. Um, mm-hmm. we were saying before the episode started, we've done a, a lot of different uh, uh, climate episodes on our show, and they do usually tackle new IPCC reports or Mm -hmm. um, current events in climate, but it does feel kind of samey after a while of Mm -hmm. understanding uh, it's time to get to socialism. If we had socialism, we could address climate change, but we don't have any. Um, Your book starts with the feeling of guilt, very Mm -hmm. popular in the climate movement. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, If you're a climate activist now, you probably got involved because you recognize climate change as a existential issue and uh, your role in it maybe compels you through your lifestyle to get involved but you kind of uh, change you you turn the conversation on its head by examining the fault quote-unquote of a consumer versus a producer in our society
2: yeah so in, in one sort of obvious way like our lives are connected to emissions and and the climate crisis and you know you know, you're driving a car and those emissions are going in the atmosphere, it seems very clear and obvious, uh, that all our sort of consumer actions are connected. Uh, so that can create these feelings of like, Oh, I'm participating. I'm complicit. I'm, I'm causing the climate breakdown, but, um, and you know, that the oil, and the, the fossil fuel industry has been happy to provide, uh, lots of ideas for how we can think about it that way, which puts all the onus on us consumers. So like the very idea of a carbon footprint was invented by British petroleum in 2004, uh, as part of their beyond petroleum campaign, which uh, was sort of people made fun of it back then. Cause it was so clear they were not that interested <laughs> in getting beyond. Then they spilled like a trillion tons of oil into the Gulf of Mexico about six years later. Um, so, you know, But under capitalism, you know, like consumers aren't just isolated pods, you know, doing our our actions in the market as just completely by ourselves, right? So we're connected in very specific ways to other producers who produce this energy for profit. um, And they are the ones who are really benefiting from these relationships, right? And you're driving, when you're consuming gasoline, the, the the person who sold you that gasoline is making all the money. You're just, a, you know, a sh- schlepping to work or whatever. <laughs> like you're picking up your children from daycare. You're, you're doing, you're trying to just survive in a very brutal uh, Adam, like sort of alienating capitalist system and to put all, you know, carbon footprints puts all the responsibility for emissions on your consumption. And doesn't, it just completely erases the role of these owners who control production, who profit off production and um, who are really like much smaller group of society, right? You know, when we think about it, it's just all of us. We're all kind of, there's diffuse responsibility and we're all kind of complicit. It does make it seem like, oh, there's no way we're going to change billions of consumers' decisions. But if you think about it, like actually, it's actually a small minority of society, a class of owners who controls production for profit. And it's their power that's really uh, inhibiting us from addressing this and we need to figure out a way to, to confront and overcome their power. It's maybe not an easier, uh, task ahead, but it's, it's certainly a simpler task. Um, and, and so, yeah, uh, it, it's, it, it's just, it's, it, it makes sense. Like all we see in our lives are, is consumption, you know? Um, and so it makes sense that we kind of concentrate on that. And, and under capitalism, we don't have a lot of freedom outside of, the realm of the market, and we get to choose what we get to consume. So it seems like this is the place where politics is. This is the place where choice is. But this, what Marx uh, started to bring him up, but um, <laughs> oh, <No, that's, laughs> yeah. By the that's way, the don't drama. bring up Marx if you can avoid <laughs> it. I meant to mention that. I get. I. I. I worry about going too far into, you know, the abstract theorization. But he mentioned. He called it literally the hidden abode of production. Where, where he argued is where the secret of profit is made, and where workers are exploited in factories. And and I think similarly, the for the climate crisis, you do have to go to these these places we don't see in our everyday lives, like steel plants or cement plants that are responsible for like nearly twenty percent of global carbon emissions. Um, huge industrial uh, agriculture operations. These are this productive sphere is where most of the emissions are coming from, and where most of the money is being made. And so we really need to focus more on that.
0: Right. Our, our society is structured around capitalists controlling our economy and that yeah. is an in, in, in intentional design uh to leave them out of the solution for climate change is impossible. Right. But uh, you I just wanted to highlight you had such a fantastic example in this that I think if you if you ever end up talking to liberal friends or a family <laughs> about climate change uh there there can be a very easy target that yeah. you, it's easy to get hung up on, which is the obnoxious Hummer owner, which you talk right. about. I hate him so in much. The thing. Because if you internalize <laughs> your emissions as guilt, and that's the thing, I have a, a Prius from 2010. It has 200,000 miles on it. Uh, good
2: on um, you, man. Good <laughs> on you.
0: <laughs> it, it, you know what? It's actually fantastic for me right now that gas yeah, is $7 right. a gallon, so I'm feeling pretty good about it. But, um, you know, I hate the big Hummer owner who's yeah. skewing, yeah. you know, 30 gallons every tank that they fill up every other day. But the social repulsion you feel to this person does not actually reflect any difference in their um, relation to production than the one that you have. Uh, If somebody works in advertising and gets paid $80,000 a year to go buy their big obnoxious house and car, they're as powerless as you are to solve (laughs) the situation, even if they do things you do not like.
2: Right. Yeah. So like if the Hummer owner also happens to be the CEO of a say a petrochemical company, like what they do in that sphere of their life, organize, you know, a global network of chemical factories that's spewing tr- billions of tons of carbon. They're doing that for eight to 12 hours a day. And, you know, that is much more impactful uh, to the climate, it's and it's where all their money comes from that allows them to buy a Hummer or drive around, uh, fill up the gas tank every couple of days, whatever you need to do if you drive a Hummer. And, and it's just very weird that we would only focus on the Hummer, which is a drop in the bucket compared to their role as the sort of owner who's making all this money over, over organizing, uh, you know, fossil fuel, carbon intensive production systems. And it also leads to very strange things like, you know, maybe... A Hollywood actor could have, a, or a good example, like an advertising executive who makes, like, I don't know, a million a year um, could have a Hummer and have a higher carbon footprint than a fossil fuel executive that takes public transit and lives in Manhattan, right? And mm-hmm. lives, like, is a vegetarian, let's say. Or in no <laughs> Yeah. Like, no one would ever say that, that that advertising executive is more responsible for climate change than the fossil fuel executive, right? But the carbon footprint makes it seem like they are, right? Because they just have a higher, so the the rich do destroy the climate, but they don't destroy it mostly through how they consume. It's about what they own and how they make their profit and how they uh, organize, like you said, like how they control everything in society that we need. And we really need to focus more on that. Um, This is just my favorite
0: anecdote about the uh, public eco warriors in their private lives. Leonardo DiCaprio apparently has an addiction to yachts. Like he, he has to spend every waking moment of his private life on a large boat adrift at sea somewhere, even though it's like single-handedly the worst thing you can do before you go star in your movie about climate change. Uh, that just really tickles me, but um, you know, and we have full forgiveness for comrade DiCaprio the minute <laughs> he is able to turn in these executives and uh, well, appropriate their, their
1: values. It's funny. Cause I remember watching the uh, interview um the 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 cast making the rounds after don't look up came out mm-hmm. and his they asked hey, what's your solution what do you think is the solution and his was just vote he like <laughs> right do a little bit of research make sure they the candidate you're voting for has a couple you know buzzwords about climate change or global warming <laughs> and vote for them and that that was it you know uh i still think uh don't look up is a good
0: movie but that's a it's a separate discussion um <laughs> Which we already have another full episode of so feel free <laughs> to get behind the paywall and listen to get, that one. But Get
1: real mad at us, uh, yeah.
0: This does flawlessly segue into the next place to take the conversation, because uh, you have a lot to say about the current climate movement. So I wanted to start about the beginning of your framing of the discussion, which is uh, environmentalism based on your relationship to labor, right? Relationship to industry, and the people most active in the climate movement right now and where they fall on that spectrum. Because you have a lot Mm -hmm. of scientists, you have Mm -hmm. a lot of college-educated professionals. You talk a lot about the climate radical, which is a position I really strongly associated myself with, which is somebody who went to college but isn't doing that well and becomes very concerned about climate change and uses all this uh, uh, knowledge um, capital that they're trying to accrue to make a job to maybe (laughs) do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, specifically Bill McKibben comes up a few times at the beginning and 350.org. Bill McKibben, who,
2: you know, is sort of one of the heroes of the climate movement and is seen as, you know, he's, he started this foundational organization, 350.org. But what I try to argue is he's sort of kind of prototypical of this, what I call professional class mode of climate politics. And the, the key uh, because this tends to—I I, argue—it's a class that is basically trying to use credentials, whether that be education or licenses or other types of credentials in the labor market to try to carve out some kind of advantage in this highly unequal, barbaric, <laughs> neoliberal capitalist system. And um, you know, you've you, you've heard—you know—people with college degrees tend to do better, and et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, so this tends to create a class of people that. Um, are highly educated uh, in the sort of knowledge economy, which means they are kind of separated from material industrial production, which is really the, the source of the climate crisis, the thing we need to transform and sort of seize, if you will. Uh, but Bill McKibben's kind of a classic example of this. He's a, just like me, professor at a, at a college. He's He's, um, you know, an author, uh, you know, famously uh, writing about climate change as as early as the 1980s, but he really does frame it as a a politics over knowledge, and that's really evidenced by the fact he named his organization 350.org, which if you don't know what that means, it means the goal we want is to get to 350 parts per million in the atmosphere of carbon and that's what science says is like the thing the safe level of carbon that can be in the or the atmosphere and so um what are we at the- right now by the way was it like 425 4- <sighs> or something i, I think Four, yeah, I think I think last week it may have gotten to 420. Uh yay, right? Nice. <laughs> that's contest, that's yeah. really bad. It's really high. It's, <laughs> it's
0: actually very alarming. Yeah, <laughs> it's,
2: not, it's not something to celebrate with uh with whatever you would yeah. celebrate with. Actually, stop um,
0: smoking weed. Your weed is contributing to the yeah. warming of the no, planet. That- That was the marijuana
1: industry's doing. The legal marijuana industry was trying to have like a sales bonanza once we hit 420.
0: Yeah, we're going to lose 60% of biodiversity, and that will achieve the perfect strain of weed. I I will say with McKibben
1: and 350, I remember, uh, I guess, 10 years ago Now, when I was in college, their sort of big mission was uh, about endowments, and they were trying to appeal directly to college students- to confront their universities' endowments, which are, you know, uh, funds that have all kinds of investments in all kinds of terrible things, sure. uh, despite being, you know, nice, fancy liberal arts colleges. Um, but where did that go? And and why was that perhaps not the the most uh, politically sound strategy for fighting climate change?
2: It's still going, you know, it's the divestment movement, and there's a lot of activists still on college campuses that are trying to get their institutions to divest from fossil fuels. Um, my college, my university, Syracuse actually claimed to do it, but it became very clear that you can claim to do it, but you can still have these sort of weird funds that are sort of have their tentacles and other things where, which probably include fossil fuels. So it became a much more like rhetorical game of claiming uh, divestment. But it, it, to me, it was a continuation of a kind of, um, you know, market-based or, uh, uh, you know, we're going to like solve this through influencing the market and Bill McKibben, actually his new thing he's been writing about lately is to get rich boomers to move their money money (laughs) out of, because he's basically like, Hey, these are the people that have money in our society. They're, they're like me. They're rich boomers, <laughs> and, <laughs> I and that's feel a bad. lot of that's a lot of <laughs> capital, and we can shift that capital if we influence the boomers. It's it's quite stunning, but I did want to mention one more thing he did um, when after he launched 350, he had this viral article in 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 um, Rolling Stone called uh, "The Most Important Numbers on Earth," and it's all about all these numbers, like how many gigatons of fossil fuels are left, uh, how we need to get to 350 how many, uh, how much profits are to be made on these gigatons. But then he he launched something called the do the math tour, where, (laughs) where he gave lectures about how we need to do this math. And we need to figure out these numbers and figure out what our carbon budget is. And it, to me, it like, it's, it's, that's professional class politics. Like we're going to do math. We're going to know the science, we're going to know the numbers, and then everyone's going to get on board because they're going to learn the truth. Right. And that is, to me, not a very effective way to kind of, build a mass uh, coalition. Cause you know, a lot of people don't want to do math and <laughs> right. aren't really concerned about what the science has to say. You know, people have much more immediate material concerns in their lives than that. So
0: um, this is, this plays directly into Andrew's favorite topic, which is holding Al Gore personally accountable for modern climate change <laughs> under the ideology of awareness. Inconvenient truth comes out in the, what is it? Early 2000s? Late oh, so 2006. 2006? Yeah, Not even early 2000. Uh, it comes out. Uh, everyone is suddenly very aware of climate change because <laughs> they've seen the most drowning bears they've historically ever seen. <laughs>
2: and it really upsets them. Al Gore on the the weird like crane that puts them up to show the emissions It goes going too up.
0: high up. <laughs> it goes the really shot high. The can't
2: handle how high up it goes.
0: <laughs> they have to back up and then get a bigger graph. what a film but um it does tap into the uh core of the argument here which is uh although being aware of climate change is nice and divesting uh your school's budget from the oil lobby may be good it is not sufficient in that it does not strategically target the elements that need to be isolated here um off of bill mckibben uh the 350.org i believe if i'm getting this right is taken from a paper from James Hansen, yeah, who is now yeah. part of the Citizens Climate Lobby, who is maybe right. like, would you would you say they're like the dominant institution at the front of the like eco movement in America for whatever I would, exists?
2: I would say they're a very important organization in what I would call kind of liberal uh, uh, climate uh, movement that um, is very attached to market based policies. Right. And there's. That's... Yeah. Go ahead.
1: That's what kind of shocked me about that. You know, you've been here. I've been hearing about James Hansen for a long time. Uh, not the Muppet Sky, to be clear, but he <laughs> uh, has been. You know, he gets arrested and he gives these very yeah. sort of dramatic, uh, impassioned speeches about action on climate change. And right. I, I guess, I wasn't paying too close attention. But uh, as you highlight, he has. Made clear several times that this cannot that the, the the solution cannot come through the state. It has to. It's like this religious belief yeah. in markets that somehow someday, despite all evidence to the contrary, uh, if we finesse it just right, and a new industry will pop up and replace um, greenhouse gases.
2: Yeah, and Obama, you know, tried his best to pass a policy that was market based called cap and trade. That the Republicans basically called cap and tax and created this sort of mass movement against, um, but then trying to to recoup his legacy in the late, later years of his administration, he tried to push through something called the clean power plan, which actually was going to be a much more state regulatory uh, solution to climate uh, by forcing power plants to just decarbonize. And uh, James Hansen criticized it for being too heavy handed uh, you know, he, he said government shouldn't be making that kind of decision over what energy we're using. So really, yeah, stunning. But um, the the citizens climate lobby has just put all their organizing into this one policy, which is called a carbon fee and dividend. They call it a fee because they know that the word tax is uh, politically unpopular in America. And so fee sounds a little more fun and neutral. Um, the dividend part is that they redistribute all the money from the tax slash fee to households, which they claim will make it remarkably popular, although there's been research recently that disproves that assumption. <laughs> um, but uh, the reason they make the dividend redistribute to households is because they insist that this is what they call a revenue neutral policy, which means the, the revenue you generate from it will not grow government, Right. Which And they do this because they think they're going to win over right wing anti-government people, Republicans, by saying, hey, this policy doesn't grow government. It doesn't expand governmental power. It just gives money to everyday people. Um, anyone that's following the climate crisis should know by now that it's going to take massive public investment and huge amounts of revenue for the government to like build out this infrastructure. Uh, and so they have this delusional idea that they're going to create this bipartisan consensus around this carbon fee and dividend, and they have one like maybe one or two Republicans to this policy. One of which famously got um, became a climate believer, became a, a strong. Uh, his name is Bob Inglis, and in, I believe South Carolina, and he became a strong climate advocate, and then swiftly was voted out of office by a radical Tea Partier in 2014. So um, this idea that they're going to create this bipartisan so, like climate uh, policy win over Republicans is just uh, crazy. And it's all based on this idea that these policies are really smart and they, they channel market incentives by charging a fee on carbon to get the market to solve it by itself. And one of the things that really, I, I find it pretty funny actually, is one of their slogans that I found on their website is that we're going to outsmart climate change <laughs> this, right to me again like typified professional class politics like climate change is really bad it's getting worse but we're smart enough because we've got the credentials to to outsmart it with ours with our lovely uh policies that we've constructed right well, that
1: makes me so i i think there's a figure like something it's down to in the 30s percent of americans who who actually believe in climate change at this point i, mean, I hope i read that wrong but that seems like that might be the case, what does believe uh,
0: mean in this sentence? Yeah.
1: Think that it's going to cause, you know, a huge catastrophe and be a, a disaster, as, you know, the science points to. But um, h- how do we address that? Do we do we try to convince those people or do we just say, look, we have these jobs and uh, they will um, mm. make your life easier and, and this will bring down the cost of living, et cetera. Do we should we still make a scientific argument to yeah. um, what is probably a majority of Americans?
2: I wish I had these numbers, they're buried in the book somewhere, but I think that it's actually a bit higher in terms of the key question, you can go to this Yale website called Yale Opinion Maps, where they crunch all the data. The key question is, do you believe that climate change is human caused? because that's actually the, the political question, you talk to any right wing person they'll be like yeah climate's changing but it's not us that's doing it right um it's part of the natural cycles this is what you'll hear from you know there's a
0: fun graph that goes back a million years where you're like <laughs> you see the graph
2: is down and then it's up and so that's it for us right <laughs> we had a good run <laughs> one of the other really important questions that they ask in the the Yale opinion climate thing is do you think climate change will affect you personally and that number is really stunningly high in terms of people don't think it will affect them personally. Like most people, even if they believe it's it's human cause, it's happening. They don't think it's a big problem for them, and that is unfortunate. But it does uh, it does kind of give evidence to the fact that we do have to offer more than just this is real, it's happening, and you better be terrified. Otherwise, uh, we're all going to die. Right. You need to offer people something like, you know, the Green New Deal, which was going to give a job guarantee and, you know, folded in things like Medicare for all. So the idea is that climate politics to to actually win over a majority is going to have to um, offer people real material benefits, real improvements to their lives Um, uh, and has to be much more than just saying this is scientifically true and 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 therefore you should just you should just accept that we need to do all these policies because of that, because of the truth. Right. Um, but, you know, I think if we can attach some sort of scientific argument about climate change being real to these more material benefits, that's fine. Right. Um, uh, we don't just It's sometimes I think people think we're just going to like fool the working class masses by goodies like jobs and healthcare and and then smuggle in the climate. Uh, but I think you can, you can do both, right? You can say this is about addressing climate change, but it's also improving your life in these direct ways. And you don't necessarily have to really get your head around the greenhouse effect to understand those material improvements.
0: Okay. Well, uh, it appears we've stumbled onto the strategy section of the book. And I was going to save this for later, but this is this is the spicy stuff. This is the hot take of the book. You know, you want this out in front. Uh, you have a term, I believe I believe you came up with that you use in the book called socialism in one sector. It yeah. has the strategy to transform society within a capitalist system to address climate change. Uh, what is socialism in one sector and why is it the strategy to beat for uh, operating in the system?
2: I have to admit that was a cheeky um Kind of a, a reference to our, our our good friend comrade Stalin. <laughs> yes, we've had Who him on the show. Up. He's a great guy. <laughs> <laughs> he advocated socialism. Well, this is seen as when the Bolshevik uh, Revolution sort of falls apart when Stalin advocates socialism in one country, right. where he sort of gives up on the idea of an internationalist proletarian revolution and says, "We're just going to hunker down here in Russia, the Soviet Union. And we're going to kind of create socialism here because it's not happening elsewhere, and we just have to accept that." So socialism in one sector is you know as we've heard you know we've read books like Naomi Klein like this changes everything climate change is about everything a classic uh, it, it it's it's actually when you look at what needs to happen in terms of decarbonization it's actually more simple than we often realize it's basically in one sector we need to massively clean up the electricity sector. And then we need to electrify all the things that don't run on electricity currently, like our transportation systems and uh, our building heating systems, you know, with heat pumps and things like that. And there's a lot of industrial applications that we could electrify. So really actually the climate struggle really does hinge on this one sector of electricity. And a lot of people, if we don't start really massively decarbonizing the electric power sector, which um, Biden claims we're going to do by 2030, which is just becoming oh, wildly, great. yeah. <laughs> um, so awesome. uh, if we don't do that though quickly, it's basically that's the material basis for all other decarbonization. So, so what I argue is that you know if we can't win a proletarian revolution by 2030 or 2035 or whenever these new IPCC deadlines, you know, if we can sort of focus really on building socialism or public ownership, at least in the electricity sector, as a path towards um, not only decarbonization, but also, you know, if we can build public ownership in one sector, it might create confidence, it might create more uh, excitement around public goods and public ownership in other sectors. But that's at least for climate, at least that's where we can start and we can just focus on this one sector. Um and, and it's, a, it's a little more simpler than just thinking we have to change everything about society. So start with electricity.
0: Right. And to uh, retouch on the, uh, the, the, the given proponents at the beginning of the book, this strategy comes from utilizing the working class, not because mm-hmm. it is uh, morally superior and not because it is um, going to be easy, but because it is by and large through the numbers The way to move politics. Yes. And so uh, you discussed the difference between a... So if we're unionizing the electrical industry, uh, the difference between a rank-and-file strategy Mm -hmm. and business unionism, because Mm -hmm. there are already electrical unions, but they're so far pretty conservative. The 2020... uh, I forget the name of the union. Um, Do you have this off the top of your head? IBEW? Yeah,
2: the International Brotherhood.
0: They went out for Biden big in 2020. So, you know, electorally, that's Mm -hmm. not a uh, leftmost flank there. So (laughs) uh, what is the difference between a rank and file strategy and business unionism? And why will one of those help us pursue our goals in, in changing the industry?
2: First thing I'd say is that to take a step back is that the labor movement has always sort of looked also like if they want to build working class power, they've They've said we need to actually organize in strategic sectors, right? Hmm. Um, Jane McAlevey, who's done a lot of work, she kind of goes back to look at how the in the 1930s, they really did concentrate on like steel and automobiles and coal as like these choke points of the economy that if you build power here, it can kind of spread or you can sh- create strikes that really shut down society and create a crisis. Um, so... If we want a labor and union-based strategy on climate, I argue we we need that kind of focus on a strategic sector. And again, electricity is, is not just strategic because it's the pathway technologically to decarbonization, but it's strategic because, as you said, there's actually a huge amount of unionization already built up into the sector. It's one of the more unionized parts of our entire economy. It's something like 25% union density, which... To many Europeans, sounds pitiful, but for the United States, it's like really, really high. good for us. <laughs> we uh, love getting paid in our twenty-five percent of the industry. <laughs> <laughs> so the twenty-five percent um, unions means that there's already existing power. There's already existing institutions um, in this sector. The problem is, as you said, that there these unions are pretty, uh, you know, top-down and conservative and so forth. So the the rank and file structure. Strategy actually argues that socialists it's actually a strategy to build socialism and it argues that socialists should get jobs in strategic sectors and become radical militant activists in those in those um unions to try to build a more militant layer in those unions to try to to fight for transformative change towards socialism and so um the people that advocate this have shown like when you look back at the 1930s when you had these sort of strike waves and huge sort of militant working class movements it really was like a little small cadre of of trotskyist or communist party people who really implanted themselves in those unions and built up and and didn't like go in there and be like listen workers this is socialism we're going to teach you what it is they kind of like they actually figured out who do the workers already respect and how can we channel leadership that already exists and, and build up a movement within the union to make it more democratic and make it more powerful and make it more rank and file based so that those workers can start to feel their power through struggle. And so um, what I argue is that that's that's what you need to do to overcome the fact that unions typically are quite hierarchical and top down and, and, and are, are a form of business unionism, which is basically where the trade union bureaucrats kind of align themselves with the bosses and everyone's getting a lot of financial benefits from this. Um, and so to, to fight that, you actually need this kind of rank and file strategy. So, um you know, DSA and others have been advocating this strategy uh, in, in 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 what are identified as strategic sectors for the labor movement. Like you got DSA members are becoming teachers, becoming nurses, getting union jobs in those sectors. So, you know, I, I think I, I make one argument. It's just a, a suggestion. Maybe uh, people could get jobs in the electric utility sector and start to try to build a more uh, militant climate uh, uh, politics within those unions to start. Get them to realize that actually they are these are these workers that are at the core of this crisis and transition. And the key thing I, I try to point out is that if these unions don't start thinking strategically about their um, about their membership and their role in the economy and the climate transition and the green transition if you actually look at the the, the the green energy sector today, the renewable energy sector, it's actually quite not friendly to unions. And it's mm-hmm. owned by Wall Street, and it's really private capitalist energy. And so if these unions aren't really thinking strategically, they're going to be destroyed, eviscerated by this kind of Wall Street, renewable energy capitalism. And so they actually need to be more to organize to, to make unions at the center of this transition as much as Joe Biden says we're going to have good union jobs for climate change. You actually have to win those union jobs. You have to make sure unions are at the center of it. So
0: they don't just appear Uh, to clarify. One of the things that you point out uh, in this chapter, the issue with business unionism is these union bosses by being elevated through the organization are removed farther away from their relationship to production as workers. When they become managers, when they become mediators with the capitalists, their job becomes making the capitalists happy. And that mm-hmm. settles on a more conservative politics. So cool. if we want to change the conversation, you have to change the organization. And uh, that fight starts there. I just thought these were such fantastic targets um, going into union density in these renewables.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, we are getting along to current events. Um, Anders, I don't know if you had something well, to chime I, in. Yeah, I just, first one year, thing but
1: I, I wanted to ask because I have heard that there are unions um, in in different sectors that do that sometimes don't get enough credit for the uh, transition plans that they have developed. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, I believe uh, Flight Attendance Union mm. has a, a plan or like sort of a an outline for clean air travel, which is something that you know you, you talk a lot in the book about uh, something that. Annoys me is academics, especially talking about their own personal travel habits and how they have yes. to band together and make sure that they fly less. Yes, and you know that that sort they're of they're going
0: right, to zoom in, right? because they're doing frankly, really well, so they don't have to show up.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean that it just strikes me as a, a type of uh, narcissism, frankly. But um, oh, yeah. but there is there are plans out there that are not coming from environmental groups necessarily, but the unions themselves about uh, transitions Mm -hmm. to to cleaner forms of technology. Um, Is there something we can uh, glean from that?
2: Yeah, I think um, I think somewhere out there, someone actually proposed this to Sarah Nelson, the union act uh, like leader and activist um, Mm -hmm. and uh, basically said, hey, there's all these people who have started this movement to fly less and to lower their carbon footprint through refusing flights. And she just laughed and said, <laughs> like, that's not, that's not great for my members and our workers that that's the disaster for us. Yeah. And she said very clearly, like you said, like what, what we need is to um is for our workers and our members to actually, you know, cause they do care about climate change. They see that this sector is contributing. It's actually not contributing as much as academics make it seem to contribute some estimates are like 3% of emissions. Um, but you know, if we're gonna, we, these, these unions and these members want to continue this, this type of work in, in, in the aviation sector. So building up working class power in that sector to kind of force it to, towards these lower carbon solutions seems like the much more rational path. than than this sort of, um, fly less, uh, just scale down and, Maybe even ban aviation travel and 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 you know shame people on Twitter for visiting their grandmother <laughs> for right. a holiday and like it's just it becomes really again a quite moralistic and I agree narcissistic politics of kind of shaming and lifestyle uh, choices and and things like that and it, and it's it's great that Sarah Nelson just laughs at it and says that's obviously not the path.
1: Right. And it seems like very strange now, but a lot of this stuff seems it it is very far away. A lot of it. But uh, clean air travel, I don't you know, I don't see why that's any more pie in the sky than greening the electrical grid or, you know, a lot of this this other stuff that um, a lot of groups across the political spectrum want to achieve.
2: You know, we all know about electric cars and that is reasonable. Um, The idea of putting a, a, you know. 300 people in a flight with just a battery propelling you is not realizable right now. So you can't electrify at least, um, you know, big air travel, like you could a car that said, there's a lot of developments in like synthetic, uh, zero carbon fuels that, um, could be solutions. Um, and there's possibilities with, green hydrogen out there and so there's a number of other options it's not quite an electrify everything situation but but there's options and and we can pursue them um i will say there's one terrible option which richard branson the virgin airlines tycoon really celebrated when he 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 flew in a virgin flight that was powered by biofuels oh did he (laughs) which is like we're going to devote um, acres and acres of land to grow, uh, you know, corn or sugar to fuel our air travel. That's a disaster. But um, <laughs> like the French uh, fry think...
0: cars, but for planes. <laughs> yeah. Does everybody remember those? Like people were putting yeah. French Bio fry Diesel. oil in the cars. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. That was yeah, big. Yeah, something like that. Ago.
0: Yeah. No, and um, the, there are a variety of tactics you can use to address climate change from the top down. But the situation we're in is the left is out of power. We need Mm -hmm. to take power in whatever form we can in order to address this in time to uh, resolve the contradiction here. We had, did you ever read Ministry for the Future, the Kim Stanley Robinson book? Yeah, yeah. We had him on last year. The conclusion of that book is essentially to create a international climate coin that (laughs) (laughs) redirects (laughs) the entire economy to uh, resolving carbon as money. And, you know, that stuff is all cool. No one right. who could do that is in power internationally. <laughs>
2: right. Yeah, it, it, it was a fascinating book and um, perhaps more a likely future than, than you know, building working class power and after decades of working class defeat. Um, but it, it struck me just like the whole book is about very technocratic uh, solutions, the carbon coin, but also just it, it, it focuses much of the story on this one woman kind of climate energy uh, expert who's trying to sway other uh, Kate Aaron great...
0: who keeps getting kidnapped is the <laughs> exactly. hero of the book and this is what really got me I went to I went to school for drama so I was very cued into this and that narratively the big mm-hmm. changes that happen in that book are not driven by the UN bureaucrat they're driven by terrorism and disasters yeah. that happen off screen and totally. then Tim Stanley Robinson jumps out in front of him waves his arms and goes but we're not going to talk about what if all of the planes exploded at once? We're just moving on past that because they're extremely dark premises that uh,
2: the rest of right. the book floats around. There's no sense that like social movements could emerge besides these kind of terrorist cells. Right. There's this one scene where there's this weird guy that they're talking to on television, I think. And he's like this really cynical guy. And they're like, what about movements? Can they saw? And he's like, ah, oh, that'll never happen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's just like, it's very bleak. It's um, Yeah but uh,
0: he's coming to it at a very interesting angle, but um, that does bring us back to the current situation we're in. So there's a few different ways we can take this conversation to get yelled at from here. <laughs> and this is the one I would like to go to is um, current events. So uh, Andrews and I, there is a New York podcast, uh, the New York build public renewables act. It is back in the news they uh we're trying to pass this bill again this is a bill that we have advocated for on the podcast yep. we both uh donated our time to uh help try to get this passed we called people uh called uh, last week calling Carl Hasty asking him to bring this to a floor vote the bill public renewables act is like the most progressive climate legislation in the US right now it is not has not been brought to a vote in the New York government Assembly. for the... Assembly for the second yes, year in a row. It passed the
2: Senate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh
0: it passed the Senate, which I know is um more optimistic than people were predicting. <clears throat> but essentially what it does is um remove private power providers from their uh throne that they sit on now and would move more energy distribution to FDRs. New York uh, Power Authority, the New York Power Authority. And so it would allow for the beginning of a public power transition. New Mm -hmm. York is like the bluest state in the union. If it could happen anywhere, it should happen here. It isn't happening here. They're now trying to get it passed in a special session in August. Mm -hmm. I hope they do. Fingers Mm -hmm. crossed. uh, This would be great. Um, You have some criticisms for the coalition that put this act together. Mm-hmm. and um, some of the strategic direction there. So why don't you talk for a little bit about the Build Public Renewables Act?
2: So the the first thing I'll say is, I, I think the idea is brilliant. Um, it's, you know, we have this existing massive state level public utility called the New York Power Authority that was founded by FDR and was this huge rollout of cheap hydropower that created cheap uh, public power for millions of New Yorkers. And the in the 1930s and beyond, um, so we have this utility that exists, and the idea of, of empowering it to build out clean energy um, is is a really great idea because for climate, essentially, it's a problem of how we generate electricity. So it's a production problem, and so that's NIPA has it could develop a new generation. The problem that I see is that essentially when you talk about public power and struggles over the electricity system, there's basically two basic constituencies on what you could call broadly the left that you need to think about. And one is obviously green NGOs, like environmental organizations that are invested in climate action, climate policy. But then there's also labor unions. And as I was just talking about, the electricity sector is heavily unionized. A lot of these unions work for NYPA uh, and work for the New York Power Authority. And then a lot of uh, unionized workers are in this kind of wider electricity system that this legislation proposes to transform. So what I, what I would say is that essentially this public power New York coalition kind of looked at those two constituencies and definitely hitched its wagon to the green NGO side of things. I mean, the, the coalition, if you look, it's basically the Energy Democracy Alliance, the Alliance for a Green Economy, the We Act for Environmental Justice. It's basically a bunch of green uh, We Act just received six million from the Bezos Fund, by the way. Uh, it's a basically Get that bag. A, <laughs> it's basically the green NGOs. And I think when you start your coalition with green NGOs, it creates consequences um, that can alienate you from the workers, from the actual unions. In the sector that you're seeking to transform. And so it's a bit, it's a bit unfortunate that we have a, it's, it's also DSA chapters, right? It's DSA chapters plus green NGOs, but socialists really, you want to put workers at the center of your theory of change. And and it's the workers that have the power in the production system to kind of shape it. And so when you look at what are the unions saying about this legislation, there, there are a couple unions that actively opposed the Build Public Renewables Act this um, session. And essentially the AFL-CIO, the most important union coalition in New York, was opposed up until the last hour where finally the Public Power Coalition was able to talk with AFL-CIO, get them to do some edits on the legislation, and they moved the AFL-CIO from opposed to neutral. <laughs> so they weren't even able to get them to support it. And so essentially and the other thing I would just throw out there is it it—it it seems clear to me that the, the coalition has not really engaged much with NIPA itself, which is, again, a massive public utility that has lots of electrical engineers and market specialists who understand this electric system way better than a lot of us. And, and it's not clear to me that NIPA, if we pass this, would each, would have the capacity or interest in building public renewables, like building out clean energy. Um, uh, because, because they would have to compete in the market. It's actually the, the legislation does not eliminate the private production of energy. It just says we're going to allow a public option essentially. And so if you put NIPA in competition with these, what they're called independent power producers who are the main, main opponents of the bill, they're the real enemy here. And they include solar producers and wind producers and, and natural gas producers. And these independent power producers, um, uh, have really generous tax credits from the federal government that give them a competitive advantage against Nipa and so it's not even clear that they can Nipa can out compete these these damn Wall Street capitalists so so uh so essentially i think by attaching itself to this ngo coalition it, it 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 alienated itself from the workers from the unions and and it's it's i think it actually has a very good chance of passing and if I think it's unlikely to do it in a special session, but I, yeah. I think it has a very good chance in 2023. But I'm, I guess I'm, I'm a little skeptical that even if it does pass, is it going to catalyze and ignite the type of transformative decarbonization that we think it's going to ignite? And I'm a little skeptical of that because I think to ignite that, you do need the workers, you do need the unions, and you need NIPA on board with this program. So.
1: Yeah. One thing I will say in sort of uh, defense of our comrades before they get mad at us and and tear up our uh, our sweatshop free damn America T-shirts. The there wasn't a a different draft of the bill originally that would completely replace um, Con Ed, which is basically as a monopoly. Um, I like to call them coned and (laughs) uh, some of the more private providers but they politically they that was a non-starter with a lot of people i think that may have been a non-starter with with a few unions if i'm not mistaken um and so it it is a a process of getting more legislators on board uh right now i i honestly was not surprised that it didn't pass i wasn't even expecting it to pass the state senate which it did uh the assembly it does have enough co-sponsors to pass but um you know you can just follow the money on the vote Well, but yeah, it's he's a big part of it, too, but it's not just him. It's it's there are a lot of co-sponsors who don't actually want to vote for it Mm -hmm. because they're getting money from Con Ed. Mm -hmm. So this election cycle in 2022 and next election cycle in 2024, a lot of those people are being challenged by DSA working families party candidates who are are not taking money from Con Ed. Um, So that seems more. Realistic to me, that'll be in 2023 or 2025 that, that it gets passed. And hopefully in that time, because this is a process, right? It takes a while to build political coalitions. It takes a while mm-hmm. to build um, coalitions with unions and, and all sorts of groups. Uh, hopefully by then we will have a, a, broader, um, a broader coalition.
2: Yeah, they actually had a whole nother bill called the New York Utility Democracy Act, which yeah. was the one that would take over the Con Eds and where I live, its national grid. And, and so they actually, they, they smartly separated the two bills. One's based on generation. That's the Build Public Renewables Act. Mm-hmm. It's based on electricity production. And the other is based on distribution, which is what Con Ed does, what National Grid does. And as you suggested, that's the harder political thing because you're, you're basically talking about expropriating the assets of these private investor-owned utilities. And that you need a lot of power to win something like that. Um, I happen by 2030, uh, yeah, exactly. We need to, Mark said, expropriate the expropriators, but, um, but, but the build public renewables act really doesn't have a lot to do with con ed because it's fully focused on generation side. So the real, the real enemies in this struggle are the independent power producers. These, um, the people that own private, uh, natural gas plants, solar facilities, wind facilities, and those are the kind of big. They're the ones that came out at the eleventh hour, really vociferously opposing. There's also called the Alliance for Clean Energy, which is a which has a lot of connections with some other green NGOs like the Sierra Club, who actually did not support this legislation because they're kind of aligned with the, these private renewable yeah. capitalists, right? Um, so that's where the struggle over the build public renewables is really against these. Um, which I agree, like these, they're called merchant generators, like that they're the, the worst types of people that think we should run our electricity production as a competitive market and have just private control of it. And, and so, um, that's the, that's the challenge is, is winning over them. And I think we could, um, cause I, th- I think we saw there's a lot of support for having this public option. So.
0: Yeah. And that the, uh, lever as always is workers and not the most concerned professional class people you've ever met in your life. <laughs> um, Okay. Well, we're, uh, I think over time. So there are more hot takes buried in here. Andrews, do you have anything else to go in on or should we just call it?
1: Uh, oh man. So much. Uh, uh, degrowth,
2: growth, bad <laughs> question mark. <laughs> not great. Yeah. Not, yeah. I, I know that's not popular um, amongst a lot of eco-socialists, but yeah. Um, do you, do you follow Ben C on Twitter? <laughs> do you know, this guy, <laughs> I think so. That's,
0: He's like a a Pollyanna and he goes and he's like, we're going to lose all armadillos next year. And then you're like, (laughs) shit. And you hit the fave button. And then he's like, you know, we got to scale down the world right now. This is the only way.
2: uh, Lee Phillips, who you might be familiar with, he wrote a book called Austerity Ecology and the Collapse Porn Addicts. Mm -hmm. And whenever I see that guy's account come up on my feed, because the algorithm wants me to see him constantly, it, I just think collapsed porn addicts, like I just see it getting retweeted and I'm like, there are the collapsed porn addicts. Yeah, I love it.
0: It, it, yeah. it. It's like, it's like I drank a coffee every time he shows up on my feed. It's like, ah, shit, all the butterflies. No, uh, um, but which- definitely has its own uh, niche in the activism left. And you yes, make a strong sure. argument against it. I don't think we have time to go fully into sure. the strengths and weaknesses of degrowth, but there is a good anecdote in your book that I think we <laughs> could talk about here, which is some of the people who advocate degrowth are pretty eccentric. Yes. And uh, you describe Fra- François Schneider, who yes. is a scientist who traveled around on a donkey and moved into a hut to get people <laughs> to degrow themselves.
2: A tiny <laughs> home, yes. It's called a tiny home uh, for frugal living, and uh, yeah, he he just hiked around rural France uh, with the donkey, and the donkey was carrying all his gear. Uh, if you go on, you can find a picture of him. He looks like straight out of a, the graduate program in my department because he's got the scruffy beard, the, the long hair, and the but also like a the North Face. Gore-Tex jacket, the nice boots. Like it's just like professional class. He has a PhD in industrial ecology. Um, and I read this in a, a famous Degrowth writing about him as a, a shining example of what the degrowth movement is. And he talks about how the villagers were bewildered by this, this guy. And <laughs> it's <laughs> easy to see how. Um, but that that to me typifies the degrowth politics, which is that we, we need to slow down, scale down, lessen our impact. Um, but also like do a lot of degrowthers often advocate like really like small scale niche solutions. Like we're going to have more urban gardens, or we're going to have, you know, communal kitchens or bike sharing or all these like small scale little, um, things. Um, but that, again, the question of how that can build the kind of power to take on the capitalists who control our society is totally never really addressed. Uh, it's making it's reminding me, I think I may have put it in the book, that there's a famous sort of political theorist named Jody Dean, who mm. she came up with a slogan, and I think she made a T-shirt of it that says, Goldman Sachs doesn't care if you raise chickens. Yeah. <laughs> and that kind of hits it uh, right on the head that... You know, like capital doesn't care if we have our little small gardens and and but the the degrowthers love this. They love donkeys and small gardens and small scale solutions. But we actually need a, a movement that can really build much more power and build much more mass appeal and resonance for people that you know don't want donkeys, right?
0: In the first world, the question for decarbonization is how do you move along this track to avoid catastrophe without inciting the yellow vest movement in the suburbs of America, which, A, I would like to see. I think it would be very funny, but uh, (laughs) would also be a political disaster. So, you know, in what ways is degrowth different than austerity and how does it work as a bottom up strategy as opposed to a top down one?
1: Yeah, I will say I, I would love to see, because speaking of uh, triggering Twitter timelines, Matt Iglesias has a new article called The Case Against Restricting Domestic Fuel Supply, mm-hmm. uh, basically yeah. argues this really roundabout sort of strange, uh, singular Iglesias way that we should continue subsidizing uh, fossil fuels. And somehow that'll be helpful for the environment. Um from the author of One Billion Americans, exactly. yeah, would burn. love to get them in a room and just have them uh, rip each other's hair out, but or lack of hair. Uh, but <laughs> on the last, hands. I guess, ending on hopefully sort of a positive note. Um, Green New Deal mm-hmm. hit the uh, hit the country hit hit the news <laughs> about hit three years scene. ago
2: now. Was it about three or four years ago? Almost four years ago. Yeah, it's yeah. hard to believe.
1: Yeah. Although I will say I uh, my first presidential election I voted in was 2012 for Joel Stein and her big issue that yeah, is the Green New Deal. Totally. So this stuff does take a long time. It's that being said, up. has the, the the clock is ticking, of course. Uh, I don't know how helpful it is to, to use the clock metaphor, but um, has that the ship sailed on the Green New Deal or is it still a crucial part of a socialist political program?
2: Um, I will also shout out, I live in Syracuse where Howie Hawkins, if you've heard of him, the sort of yes, perennial green I've party interviewed him. So he's an amazing, uh, socialist activist lives in Syracuse and, and yeah, he was talking about a green new deal long before AOC and all the rest. Um, but, uh, I do think when it did blow up in the, it was the fall of 2018, when the Sunrise Movement sat in on Pelosi's office and they called for a Green New Deal, I thought it had it actually, at a mass level, it finally kind of created a kind of way of talking about climate politics that is about material improvements, about addressing inequality, about rolling out public goods to the masses of working people in ways that can actually benefit people's lives. So I thought it was a real breakthrough. But of course, like, it's one thing to have a breakthrough, like on a rhetorical level, uh, and it's another to actually deliver that breakthrough in actual real life. <laughs> and, and so they released a resolution. It was clear the resolution that AOC and Ed Markey released in, in February 2019 was supposed to be a document, a visioning document, as they would call it, that the, the 2020 presidential candidates would kind of campaign around. And that's what happened. You know, you the 2020 primary, you did have different candidates. Even Kamala Harris said she was for the Green New Deal in the early parts of it. And then you had Bernie kind of emerge as the Green New Deal candidate and Sunrise Movement endorsed him, got behind him. And so it was this kind of gambit to kind of win presidential power, uh, because there's a lot a president can do. uh, We're we're, like we're really sadly learning that by the lack of what Biden is doing (laughs) But um, we lost that gambit at presidential power and and Biden won. He denounced the Green New Deal in the general election. He said, I'm not for the Green New Deal. And then his policies, even the Build Back Better Act was just basically a bunch of tax credits for private renewable development. It was not this kind of grand vision of public investment and public Mm -hmm. rollouts of public goods. So um, we lost that gambit. And I think to actually the theory of change embedded in the Green New Deal was that you start delivering Material benefits to people, and it starts to stitch together uh, sort of political majorities that that kind of benefit from these policies and start to start to get behind this kind of movement. And, and to be clear, it would be kind of this kind of green, social de- democratic uh, type of movement. And but if you don't deliver it, people are not gonna get behind it. So the theory of change means you really have to start delivering this stuff for people to believe it, because. When I was canvassing for Bernie and like all of us probably in 2020, mm-hmm. I would say like we're going to do Medicare for all. We're going to do a green new deal. And most people's response is like, that sounds great. I would love that, but it's never going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> I don't believe you. So there's this, uh, Vivek Chibber calls it this resignation that the working class feels after decades of defeat. And that's a real hard thing to overcome. And so um, I actually, we definitely should not jettison the idea of the green new deal, but we need to wait for the political winds to shift again to where there would be a, a, a an actual capacity to win state power at that kind of level to start delivering. And and we're actually already seeing it delivered on a smaller scale at, at like the city level, like the, the, the mayor of Boston ran right. on a green new deal and she's, she like created like free public transit and things like that. So we're seeing sort of little spurts of it. Um, But to me, uh, it's really hard to win working class movements at just straight shortcut through to the electoral level, like we're going to win the presidency, right? So there's, as Jay McAlevey said, there's really no shortcuts, we have to build organizational power and working class power in unions and in the labor movement. And that's the kind of real movement that can start to deliver material gains and build confidence among workers that they're part of something that can, that they, they deserve to win better lives and they can win better lives. And if we can build that kind of institutional organizational power first, then when the next cycle comes around where there might be a way to, to build more of an electoral majority, we might be, have the capacity to do it. But right now there's really, we just have to put our heads down and get back to labor organizing, I would say, among other types of organizing.
0: Right. And that brings us on to plugs. If you are a 20-year-old lost in life listening to our radio show, go to uh, get electrical training now. Join a firm. Keep your head down. Don't don't say anything weird for six months. Occasionally, bring a beer in for the resident alcoholic because that will warm you into their hearts. And then slowly, much like the infiltrating snake, you start bringing up improving conditions, workplace uh, uh, workplace improvements. And all of a sudden, cut two five years, we have a new working class majority juggernaut <laughs> transforming the entire nihilistic American political uh, landscape into something where there are butterflies and we love it. Um, Matt, thank you so much for coming on. The book is Climate Change's Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet. Just read this thing. You're going to love it if you like in-depth discussion of this stuff. Where can people find the book?
2: It's at Verso Books. Look for the black and red cover.
1: <laughs> right.
2: Godfather font. Yeah, the Godfather font. Don't go
1: thinking like you're getting a green book. No, no, yeah. there's no Gaddafi stuff here. No,
2: no. It's definitely red. It's all about the red. Have you considered writing a Gaddafi book? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh you know um i did worry i remember telling the publishers that i worried that the the red and black actually has anarchist connotations and i'm, I'm definitely kind of not in that vein huh? but but i was assured that it can just have a broader socialist aesthetic and it won't it won't be seen as an anarchist uh tome if you will or manifesto
0: right that is a concern for many publishers <laughs> <It's> the <laughs> anarchist Book uh, surge. Yeah, that, I'm. Sh- that's so funny. Uh, I'm sure that's a
1: very verso uh, discussion. Is which obscure <laughs> political tendency is this uh, cover
2: going to appeal to? Exactly.
0: Is it too ultra to make the book purple?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I want Barney on the cover. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, as for the rest of us, thank you for coming to paid protest last night, June seventeenth. What a show it yeah. it was in the past tense. I can't wait for the next one, whenever that will be. We're taking a month off, so not, not next month. Check back on that. Um, Anders, what are you plugging?
1: At Anders Lee here on Twitter, and uh, I have, uh, I'm have i going to bring up the courage to plug my sub stack. I have a sub stack. <laughs> Anders Lee here. Embarrassing. Not as embarrassing as having a podcast, though, so I don't feel that bad <laughs> about it. It's, it's Anders Lee here. I have a short story about a uh podcaster in metropolis if superman were real so uh you can read that at Anders Lee here on substack and i'll have some more other uh political essays some interviews and stuff there as well
0: and yeah also we have an entire patreon with twice as many episodes if you would like more episodes including an hour-long discussion about
2: don't look up don't, don't look, look up yes, yeah yes. that
0: Uh, was a 50-50 on making people mad. Which one are you? Go find out. (laughs)
1: Let's
0: talk about the matrix over there.
1: And we (laughs) should also plug, too, uh, ahead of everything, the Eco-Socialist Working Group, which is a national working group, uh, DSA USA. There are also a lot of local chapters with local Mm -hmm. Eco-Socialist working groups
2: if you are a DSA member. I was the chair of Syracuse eco Socialist for two years here. Wow, shout out. Yeah.
0: Must be nice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's it for us all here at Poddam America. We'll see you at the post office Next next week. Yep. All right. Bye.